All right, I want to welcome everybody here this morning. I know we got a lot of new faces around, and we are glad that you are here. We welcome you. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to go ahead and turn to the book of 1 John. We are uh, our meat and potatoes of the way that we preach on Sunday mornings at this church as we walk through books of the Bible. We've been out of a book for a few weeks now, and today we're going to start uh, walking through the book of 1 John together. And I want to tell you on the front end that we've got a lot to do in the next little bit of time. Here's what we're about to do. I'm about to give you an overview of the book of 1 John. Okay, And that's hard enough. And then we're going to turn around and I'm going to preach the four, first four verses of chapter 1 to you. And then we're still not done. I'm, with God's help, I'm going to give every one of us in this room encouragement to evangelize our city and all nations for Jesus. And then I'm going to unpack the trip that Blake and I just got back from, from the United Arab Emirates last week. And to top it all off, I'm going to give a charge to everybody in the room to consider relocating your life to work and to labor among the unreached of the world for Christ. And all that's about to happen in the next hour. Well, full disclosure, hour 10. Okay? So we need God's help this morning. We need God's help this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to You and all we have is You, Lord Jesus. Lord, at the end of the day, at the end of our life, God, that is true, Lord. All we have is You and You are more than enough. You are the treasure in the field. You are the Lord, our God. And we are Your people, Lord. And we desire You today. We desire Your Word, God. We desire You to draw near to us, Lord. We ask for Your help today. God, we ask for Your help as a church that is called by Your name. God, help us to hear Your Word. And Lord, we just petition You this morning. We lay hold of Your garment, Lord Jesus. And our prayer, God, is that You would bless us, Lord. That You would teach us Your Word. That You would open our minds to understand the Scriptures. God, that You would encourage us this morning with Your glorious Gospel. That You would turn our face to the heavens. That You would remind us all across this room where our help comes from, Lord. God, we pray that You would bear witness to the power of Your Gospel, even as we gather together as Your people. Lord, stand by Your Word. God, I pray for anyone in this room who walks in darkness, God, that does not know You. Lord, I pray that You would call them to Yourself. Even this morning, God, that You would pierce them with Your Word. God, do it in such a way that no one but You gets credit and gets glory and gets praise, Lord, for the work that is done in this place. God, we want to meet with You, Lord. Come draw near to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 1. And we're going to read our passage together. The first four verses of chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, I want your eyes on these words. We say this a lot, I'll say it again. This is the most important thing that you're going to hear in the next hour. These are the words of God, not the words of man. 1 John chapter 1, the first four verses. This is the Word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it 
and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the Word of God. Now I want to jump into a quick overview of this book before we dive into this paragraph of Scripture. As far as the author of the book, the letter doesn't tell us. Nobody's specifically named in the letter of 1 John. From the 2nd century on, the church has always affirmed that the Apostle John wrote this letter. And one of the things that we're going to see today is that whoever the author of this letter is, we know that he is an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that we're going to unpack later. He is an apostle of Jesus. He physically saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in a physical way. He touched Him. He's an apostle. And given the time frame that this letter was written and the close vocabulary to the, to the Gospel of John, almost certainly the Apostle John writes this letter. Okay, This is a letter from John the Apostle, the one who leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper. And then ask yourself this, why is he writing this? What's the occasion for the letter that we're about to spend the next couple of months studying? And the occasion, it's not, hey, just, just wanted to check in on you, heard things are going well. Okay, There is a massive problem that is busted loose in these group of churches that John is overseeing, that he's closely related to. And this attack on these churches, it doesn't come in the form of outside persecution. Where the government is snatching down on a group of Christians and trying to silence the witness of the gospel of Jesus. That's not the attack. The attack that has unleashed itself on these group of churches is an inward movement of false doctrine. False doctrine about the Lord Jesus. So you need to know that. We're going to study this in a minute. This is why he picks up the pen to write to these, this group of churches. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So he picks up the pen and he is going to war that these false teachers, these false prophets, these deceivers would not deceive this church of true Christians. So he's going to war against false doctrine in this letter. And what are they teaching? What is their doctrine that they're spreading? They are spreading lies about Jesus. Okay? This is the bullseye center of false doctrine. It always has been. Ancient lies about Jesus Christ. The most important question that you can ever ask or answer is who is Jesus? Who is He biblically? Who is the real Christ? And they got the answer to that question wrong. And they were damned forever. And you need to know this about, about doctrines about Jesus. This is, this is getting to the core of the gospel. You get this wrong and there is no chance that you will ever be saved. The only, only way that you can ever be saved is that you know the real Christ. And they got the answer wrong to this question. They, they began to spread lies about Jesus. This still happens today. What we're reading about, it still happens today. It manifests itself in a little bit different way, but it's the same satanic strategy from the very beginning to attack the person and the work of Jesus. They are lying about Jesus. 
And what they're specifically doing is they are shaping a Christ in a form of Jesus into, the, into their own image, into their own preferences, into their own likeness. And that still happens all over the world. Okay? There are things about Jesus in the Scriptures that are offensive. And the temptation is that we set these things aside and redefine a Christ that we can stomach. That, a Christ that, that, that conforms to our preferences. And the way that they were doing this was they were allowing their pagan worldviews, that's the philosophies of the world, okay? Every system of thought that's apart from Christ, they were allowing their pagan worldviews and they were trying to import these worldviews into Christianity and try to redefine Christianity in some new and improved version. This still happens. This still happens all around you. There are things about Scripture that modern men and women hate. They hate it with a passion. You even mention things about God's judgment in this culture. And they can't even stomach it. Why? Because it's not a God of their preference. It's not a God of their own likeness. You mention things about gender roles. And the first thing you hear out of the mouth of modern man is that's so primitive. That's so ancient. We need to redefine this thing. Surely we have progressed further than this. Okay? They redefine Jesus according to their own preference and likeness. And the end product is always spiritual suicide. This is a pathway to eternal destruction. When we begin to try to go into the historic gospel of Jesus, the historic doctrines of Christianity and tweak it with some new things, with some new ideas. And that's exactly what they're doing in this letter. And I want to give you three really weird words, okay, to help you understand what's going on here. You can't peg this false teaching down to one thing specific, but you have these three words are going to give you the stream of what John is dealing with in this letter. And the words are this. The first is Gnosticism, okay? And the second word is Docetism. And then the third word is actually a false teacher's name named Serenthus. And I want us to unpack these things this morning. I want, you, I want you to get a feel for the lies about Jesus that were being launched on the church in the first century. And it's going to help us to understand what John is doing and what he's not doing in this letter. So I want to start with Gnosticism. Ancient heretical lies about Jesus. This needs to be an alarm going off in your ears. Gnosticism. Two main features. The first is a belief in the impurity of all matter, the impurity of all matter, Gnostics believed that the body of man was good. I mean, the body of man was evil and that the spirit of man was good. Everything that was physical, everything that was made of matter was impure to the Gnostics. This worldview is known as dualism. Okay, that was the first feature of Gnosticism, the impurity of matter. And the second feature is this, they believed in the supremacy of human knowledge. Okay, The word gnosis is the Greek word that means knowledge. That's where Gnosticism gets its name from. Okay, And what they believed was that their good part of them, their spirit was imprisoned to, in the bad part of them, their body. And that they needed to be delivered. Okay, And their form of deliverance, their form of salvation came in the form of enlightenment, in this higher knowledge, this higher intellect. That's Gnosticism. Now the second stream. 
The word docetism, this is a very specific branch of Gnosticism that took that worldview that I just described to you and applied it specifically to Jesus. And they twisted the Christ of the Bible to make him a false Christ. And they damned themselves. Okay? Docetism. The word dokeo means to seem. That's a Greek word that means to seem. And, 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 and here's, here's their mind. Here's their worldview. They say everything that's matter is sinful. All bodies of human beings are sinful. And there is no way that Christ had a real body. He only seemed to be human. That's what they taught. Just like God showed up in the Old Testament theophanies where he appeared himself he revealed himself to people in human form and then he and then he disappeared and 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 he he made himself known and he disappeared and made himself known and disappeared they said that's what jesus was like he wasn't like a real human being he only seemed to be a human being he wasn't really a real human being He, he was a phantom he was a spirit he didn't really have a body he only seemed to have a body Now, this is very unique because almost all heresies about Jesus in our modern day attack the deity of Christ. Okay? Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Islam, they have a false Jesus. Their Jesus is not God, therefore he is not the real Jesus. You redefine the natures of Christ and you lose Christ. They... They serve a false Christ. They know about a false Christ. But that's not the only thing. Okay? That's our modern day experience that people launch an attack on the deity of Christ because they cannot even begin to stomach the thought that the incarnate God actually inhabited a human body. They can't even get it in their Western rationalistic worldview. So they reject it. They reject the deity of Christ. Well, what these teachers were doing is they they were rejecting the humanity of Christ. He's not a real human. Listen to what John writes in 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Do you see what he's doing? He's, he's hammering this false doctrine. He's reassuring the church about truths about Jesus. Who is the real Jesus? Those first two words were false systems, heretical systems. This last word is a specific false teacher that's living as, as a contemporary of the Apostle John. His name is Serenthus. Okay? There's a book in the 2nd century named Against Heresies. It's written by a man named Irenaeus. He was a 2nd century church leader. And listen, listen to how Irenaeus describes Serenthus' teaching. He calls this man... The enemy of the truth. And I want, you, I want to give you an exact quote. This is a verbatim description of what this man was teaching around the same area. He represented Jesus as not having been born of a virgin, but as being the son of Joseph and Mary, according to the ordinary course of human generation. While he was nevertheless more righteous, prudent, and wise than any other man. Do you catch that? That sounds exactly like Islam. That sounds exactly like Gandhi talking about Jesus. I mean, he's not the eternal God-man. He was born of Mary and Joseph just like everybody else. But he is a great teacher. He is a great man. He is a righteous man. More righteous than any other, maybe. 
This is what the man said about Jesus, but he took it even further. He says, Moreover, after his baptism, Christ descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove from the supreme ruler, but later Christ departed from Jesus, and then Jesus suffered on the cross. So specifically what this, this false teaching is doing is it is separating the divine Christ from the human Jesus. And that man taught that when, when they read the Gospels and they saw the Holy Spirit come down on Jesus, they couldn't stomach that the real human body was also deity incarnate. So they said, actually at that point, the divine Christ came on the human Jesus and there's no way that God could taste death. And so right before Jesus died on the cross, the divine Christ left Jesus. This is an ancient lie about Jesus. Which is exactly why John writes this. 1 John 5, 6. This is He who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Can't separate Him. He's not the human Jesus and the divine Christ. He's Jesus Christ. He came by water and and blood, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And so you see what John is doing here, okay? He is telling this church that the same Christ that started his ministry at baptism finished it on a bloody cross. He is Jesus Christ. He is the same Jesus. You are not allowed to tear apart the natures of Christ. He is God and he is man. Forever he is God and he is man. This is the real Jesus. The true Christ. Because these false teachers imported this pagan worldview into their understanding of Christianity, they redefine Christ. And that's the danger for us. That's the danger for us. When we bump against things that rub against what we've always thought or what we always heard, at that moment, it's a call to bow to the Scriptures, to bow to the truth, not to redefine the truth and to redefine the Scriptures in a palatable way. This is the danger for us. We cannot make a Christ in our own preference. So John writes to protect this church from deceivers. And here's what he does. You see the word knowledge to these Gnostic, Gnostic things going around. The word knowledge happens over 40 times in this letter. He wants these believers to know something. To know something. He wants to hammer it in. To drive it in. And what you see him revisiting over and over and over. He wants them to know the truth about Jesus. The real Christ. He wants them to know the truth about Jesus and the truth about the Christian life. Real conversion. He wants them to know these things. He wants them to be grounded in these things. Listen to 1 John 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. If you were to write a purpose statement over this letter, that's it. He picks up this pen to this church and what he's doing is he's writing to a group of people that profess to be Christians. Okay? And he wants, the, he wants them to know that they have eternal life. Now he's doing two things at the same time. And I pray that this happens across this church over the next couple of months as we walk through this letter. This is why the letter exists. This is why it exists. Two things at the same time. The first thing is this. He intends to destroy the false, assure, the false assurance of counterfeit Christians in these churches. The ones who have been swept away with false doctrine. He wants the ones that really believe to really know that they have eternal life. 
And He wants that to happen. And we want that to happen in this church. We, we don't want to walk over the cliff of false conversion into eternity of separation from God with no alarm going off in our spirit that we are lost. We want to know. We want to know that we do not have eternal life. That we are not from God. We want to know that. But the main thing that John is doing in this letter is he is writing to Christians to comfort them. He is writing to, to assure them, to, 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 to establish them in the true gospel. And he wants these Christians to know that they have eternal life. This is the main reason that he's writing. God's will for every believer, every single Christian, is that you would know that you have eternal life. We want God to do that as we preach through this letter. We want God to visit the preaching of this letter to make it do what he said it was supposed to do. That He would make us aware all across this room that the ones who believe, we really have eternal life. He is jealous for every Christian to know this. You can know that you know that you know that you possess eternal life. You can know that you know that you know that you will never die. You can know this. And when I say know that you have eternal life, one of the biggest distortions is that one of the first things that comes to our mind is know that you're going to go to heaven when you die. That is not what that means. That is not what that means. Of course every Christian goes to heaven when they die. Those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ. Of course they do. That's not what he said. What he said is that you could know right now that you possess eternal life. Life from God. The one who existed with the Father from eternity. Life manifested in this world and lives in us. We can know that. You can know by experience that your life has been radically transformed by the gospel. This is an experiential knowledge of eternal life. Not some check facts on the list that you're going to heaven when you die. But right now, in your soul, you possess the life of God. You can know that. It's God's will for every Christian to know this. This is what we want God to do. To wake us up to the reality of these, gospel, these gracious gospel gifts that we have eternal life from Christ. May God do this all across this church as we walk through this letter. Now, our passage, our passage today, we're going to focus on the first thing that John does in this letter is he launches out and reminds this church of the gospel that was proclaimed to them. He reminds them of the gospel that they started with. And this is what we're going to focus on today. Everything in this paragraph centers around the main verb in verse 3. This is the only verb there. It's to proclaim. That's the main point of what he's doing. Remember what you heard. Remember what we made known to you. And so I, I want us to be reminded of that. Every Christian in the room, I want you to be reminded today of the gospel that called you from spiritual death to life with Christ. This is the same message. Thousands of years have passed. It hasn't altered at all. It is the same message that raises sinners from the dead. And we get to gather around God's Word and we get to be reminded of this glorious Gospel this morning and our, our hearts and our minds ought to be calling out to God saying, Lord, exalt Your Gospel in my life. Remind me of that message that saved me. Remind me, Lord, this morning do it. 
We're going we're gonna to cover this passage through three headings this morning. And the first heading is this. The content. What is the content of the Gospel proclamation? Second heading is going to be the apostolic nature of the Gospel proclamation. And then the third heading is going to be what is the purpose of proclaiming the Gospel? And we're going to cover this passage through those three headings. And let's start with the first one. The content of the Gospel that we preach. What is the content of the Gospel that we preach? Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the Word of life. Immediately, without even wasting any ink on the paper, He tells you two things about Jesus that ought to put us on our face to worship Christ for millions of ages into eternity. And the first thing He says about the real Jesus is that He is eternal. The Christ of Scripture, the Jesus of Scripture, is eternal. Verse 1, From the beginning, He was. That word was is existed. He, he had His being from the very beginning. Where were you before you were born? Where were you before you were born? Scratch your head. You were nowhere. You did not exist. Where was Jesus before He was born? He inhabited eternity with the Father. Look at verse 2. It tells us that He was with the Father from the beginning in eternity. And the Greek there literally says He was toward the Father. And this vivid picture that God the Father and God the Son, they're in a face-to-face eternal relationship with one another. They're worshiping one another in eternity. They are in constant communion with one another, never ceasing. God doesn't need anything. God didn't create the world in Genesis 1 because He needed anything. He was satisfied in Himself. He was in eternal communion with Himself. Jesus is in eternity before He was born with God the Father from the very beginning. This is amazing. The Christ that we worship this morning never had a beginning. No one else in all of creation can say that. Creation has a beginning. But the Creator does not. The Christ of Scripture is eternal. Verse 1. And then in the same sentence, in the same verse, the second thing that is said about Jesus is that He is human. Okay? Without even, without even breaking thought, without any apologies of, I know this is really hard to understand, nothing like that. It goes straight from the one who was from the beginning being heard and seen and touched in a real human body. In one sentence, he transitions from eternity to real human history. This is the Jesus of Scripture. He is the one, the eternal God, eternal God the Son that invades time. This is the doctrine of the Incarnation, right? That God the Son became a man. That's what they were rejecting. And he hits them with it in the first verse. They're arguing with the apostle. Saying, no, Jesus didn't have a real body. He's saying, I saw him. I touched him with my hands. What are you talking about? The one who inhabited eternity became a man and walked among us. He's the God-man. Deity from eternity and yet in a real human body. This is the incarnation. 
John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When is the last time that you just lingered over that and gloried over that? That Christ never had a beginning and yet He made Himself a man. Came to us as a man. And when He came, He appeared in a real physical way. Okay? Not in a mystical, hippie way. Right? some reason, I have to work that in like 50% of the time, that word. And I'm sorry for that. But it's a real physical appearance, right? Not this docetism that seemed like it. It's real. They heard Him. They saw Him with their own eyes. They touched Him with their own hands. Right? Now, in the Old Testament, people heard God. We just read that. If you're on the Bible reading plan with a lot of us. God gave His law and He thundered from Sinai with His voice. And the people of God trembled when they heard the voice of God. This is different. Okay? This is not hearing a booming, audible voice from heaven. Okay? This is something entirely different. When, when these men heard Jesus speak, when they heard His voice, their eyes are looking at the lips of the God-man moving up and down. They see Him in His physical body. And while He's standing there talking to them, they can reach out and touch His arm and grab Jesus in a real physical body. He's the God-man in a real physical way. These, these, these men who are with Him, they walk thousands of miles down dusty roads with Jesus, spent countless days with Christ, ate hundreds of meals with Jesus. He is in a real physical body. A real physical body. And yet He is from the beginning. And at the end of the verse, Jesus is called the Word of Life. And that reminds us of the reason for His incarnation. Why in the world is the One who was from the beginning with God the Father taking on a human body and invading human history? And that verse says because He's bringing life. He is here he is the incarnate deity and He's here to do a work and He's here to bring eternal life. He's not here for no reason. He's here for a reason. He's here on a mission, a rescue mission of salvation. And that presupposes something, right? Like Jesus came to bring life. That doesn't sound like really good news, right? Because everybody in this room has something in common. You're alive, right? You're alive. And so when we announce this gospel that Jesus came to bring life, it doesn't sound like good news because you live. You have a pulse. You breathe in this world. You're alive, right? In one way, yes, you are alive. Absolutely, you are alive. But the Bible teaches that every single descendant of Adam from the Garden of Eden, there's a part of you that is dead in transgression and sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Romans 5, verse 12 says that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. And so yes, people live and move and breathe in this world. But outside of Jesus, they are dead in their sins. They are a dead man walking. They are a dead woman walking this earth. There is a part of their soul that has shriveled up and died. And God has promised that they will face Him in eternity and judgment. And He will pour out eternal death on all who die outside of Christ. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus. 
You remember Ryan said this, right? Nothing in all of humanity merited or deserved Him to leave eternity with the Father and take on human flesh to come and bring us life. And how did He do it? How did He do it? He lived a life that we should have lived. He lived a perfect life in a real human body, a real sinless human body. And then the Son of God was sacrificed, slaughtered like a lamb for our sins, taking our payment, taking our punishment. And so He came to give life by laying His down in a bloody death in our place. This is why He is here to give life. To give life. Now, that ought to remind us of what happened to us when we believe the gospel, right? We received life from God. I want you to be encouraged by this. What happened when you repented of your sins and you believed on Christ? This word of life gave you life instantaneously in a moment. And I just want to say this. Sometimes there's really weird stories about who has a good testimony and who has a bad testimony, right? And the ones who have a really, I mean, knock it out of the park testimony. These are your prostitutes and your one who, you know, goes to prison, killed a few people, tats up all down the arms, on the forehead. And then they heard the gospel and they killed a Christian and they heard it again and, and they heard it again. And then they finally convert after this massive life of sin. And we say that is a powerful testimony. And, and what this reminds us of is that every single Christian Every single one of us who have repented of our sins and believed on Christ has been raised from the dead. God has raised us from the dead. Now you just think about this. Think about how silly it is. You got two people walking around and one has this really terrible past and one is sinful on the inside but has lived a really you know, reserved life. And God has saved both of them. Think of how absolutely moronic it is for the person who has lived a really sinful life to say, yeah, we were both raised from the dead, but I had, you know, 0.25 more pounds of sin on me when Christ ripped me out of the tomb. You know, you, you only had, you know, 0.17 pounds of sin on you when Christ ripped you out of the tomb. You see how silly that is? Silly. They're both resurrected from the dead. No pulse. No consciousness. No interaction with anybody. And Christ saves them, rips them from the grave. And that happens to everyone who believes the gospel, no matter if you're 7 or 70. No matter what has happened in your life, no matter what your history is, raised from the dead. This is why He is here, to give us life. To give us life. He is the Word of life. This is the content of the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is not a principle to live by. It's not a set of strategies for you to live a better life. The gospel is a proclamation of a living person. The eternal son made flesh that came and died on the cross to give us life. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. It is powerful to raise you from the dead even in this room, even in this moment. It is the power of God unto salvation. Next heading. I want us to see this. Very important that we grab a hold of this gospel that we just unpacked and its apostolic nature. That's the best way I can explain that. This gospel that you just heard about, the one that saved every Christian in this room, I want you to focus on its apostolic 
nature. Verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The we in verse 2 is an apostolic we. It is the we that includes John and all the apostles. In this paragraph, the we's mean apostles, and everywhere else in this letter, the we's mean the author and the recipients. Okay? This is, this is something very unique that he is highlighting for them in the very beginning verses of this letter. Something happened to a few of us, okay, is what he's saying, that affects all the rest of us. Okay? The we is the apostles. And the thing that he highlights over four times in this paragraph, we saw him, we have seen him, we looked upon him, we saw him. Four times a reference to seen. And so he's highlighting something for us, right? That there was a group of men on the planet when that eternal life was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. There was a group of men who saw him. Eyewitness apostles of Jesus. They physically witnessed the incarnate Christ. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. Anybody in the room want to claim that? We saw him with our eyes. We heard him with our ears. We touched Jesus in a physical way. This is... This is really important for you to know. Know this well. There is a real big tendency to read the Scriptures and everything that you read, you read back into yourself. Okay? But there is an experience that the apostles had that is never to be repeated again. Ever to be repeated again. I want you to see that there is an essential difference between an apostle of Jesus and every other Christian throughout church history. We did not, we cannot physically touch Jesus. Okay? And if you think you have, you need to run from the people who are talking like this. That we touched Him. That He showed up and we touched Him. No, you didn't. No, you did not. You did not touch Christ. You didn't see Him in a physical way. Okay? And about the last thing you need to hear before you run out of the church doors is I'm Apostle Bob or I'm Apostle uh, Bill or I'm Apostle uh, uh, Shannon. Whatever it is. Okay? (laughs) And I say that in seriousness. That is cutting at the heart of the differences between these men and every other Christian. They physically saw Christ Firsthand. And the word that's used here to describe this is the word testify in verse 2. They saw him and then they testified. Now, that is a law court term, okay? This is a term of experience. Not secondhand information, but firsthand experience. There is a sense 
in which they testify about Jesus in a way that no one else can. Okay? You imagine this. I'll use Ron and Lydia as an example. This is evidence. You have some sort of trial and somebody robbed a bank and, 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 and Ryan goes in and they got him on the bench and they say, Ryan, did you see somebody rob the bank? And Ryan says, well, you know, Lydia told me she saw somebody rob the bank. The first thing that happens is they get Ryan off the bench, okay, and they bring Lydia in, the one who actually saw it, the one who can actually bear witness and testify, eyewitness. Because what Ryan said is not authoritative. So-and-so told me about these things. So-and-so told me about these things. What Lydia says is authoritative. I saw it with my eyes. That's the difference here. Their message is authoritative because it's first hand. They touched him. They touched him. Can you imagine the arrogance of, of one of these false teachers or even modern day people arguing with the Apostle John? They're saying, no, 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 you know, I think he's a phantom. And John's saying, you know, the problem is, is that I lived with him. I knew him. I, I heard him when he speaks. And that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You see that? You can't argue with an apostle. They have first hand authoritative experience. And that's what we do every time we kick against sound doctrine in the Word of God and redefine Christ. Their apostolic authority is never to be repeated. Now, we have an authoritative gospel. The gospel that we preach raises the dead. It is full of authority. When we speak the gospel, God speaks it through us. It is authoritative. But... It's only authoritative to the degree that it matches and corresponds to their gospel. You see that? That's our job. Our job is not to replicate the experience of an apostle and have visions and interpretations and physical touching of Jesus. Our job is to receive their testimony. To receive it. To believe it. That we would stake our life on it. That's our job. To receive the testimony of the apostles. And the last thing I want to mention here about what these men did. Jesus was manifested to them and they bore authoritative first-hand witness that yes, He was God. Yes, He was here. Yes, He was raised from the dead. And you have one more verb in verse 2. And it says that they proclaimed Him. That they proclaimed Him. And I want you to see this. This is the theme that you see so many times in Scripture. Okay? That God blesses, God manifests, God reveals to a few, to one... For the sake of the many. This is how he's always done it. Okay? And so Jesus showed up to them. And they didn't grab, you know, a, a 12 or 11 person huddle for the next 60 years and just talk about everything that Jesus said to them. They didn't hold it as a private possession. Their, their knowledge of Jesus, the things that Jesus, Jesus taught them. They made it known. They made it known in every way they could. They made it known in every avenue possible. They proclaimed the Christ that revealed Himself. Listen to Acts chapter 5 verse 28. tells us that these apostles that saw Him, that they took the largest city in Israel, Jerusalem. And Acts chapter 5 verse 28 tells us that they filled that entire city with the teaching of Jesus. They filled the city. They filled a mega city, a global city with the true gospel. This is, this is the, the measure of proclamation. Later in the book of Acts, Acts 17 verse 6, it says that these men turned the world upside down with their proclamation of Jesus Christ. Jesus was made known and they proclaimed Him among the nations. This is the pattern. Alright. Ask yourself why. 
Why? Why is, the, why is Christ being made known among the nations? Why such evangelistic zeal, evangelistic thrust in the New Testament? Why the first thing that happens after the Holy Spirit descends is that gospel begins to go forth to the ends of the earth. Why? Look at verse 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. So in this verse, we are reminded that the reason the gospel has always been proclaimed is to give people fellowship. Okay? To give people fellowship. Now, let's talk about this. There's no word, I would argue, in church history... That in southern culture has been more abused than this word, right? Okay? This word, let's just underline it. Let's just hit it a few times. This word has nothing to do with, chick- with fried chicken dinners. has nothing to do with potluck socials. It has nothing to do with having a cup of coffee um, with one of your friends. It has nothing to do with chatting about random things in life. Okay? I know that, that we say that a lot. That, oh, man, that's some good fellowship. Okay? That word, it, it doesn't mean that. Biblically, this word means to participate in something together, to share in something together. Okay? This is why we proclaim this gospel. And the way that this is worded, it should really surprise you. Because what we would think it would say is that I'm reminding you of the biblical gospel so that you would have fellowship with God. Okay? And he does go on to say that. That we truly have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. He does say that. But what he says first should ring in our ears. He reminds them that he's reminding them of the true gospel. That they would have fellowship with us. That's with the apostles. Okay? And this is the reminder. The way that that is worded so carefully is a reminder for us that there is no such thing. There is no such thing in all of God's creation of fellowship with the Father and with the Son without coming through the apostles. It is impossible to know God or to know His Son without the message that they unleashed on the world. This is the gospel. There's no fellowship with God apart from receiving the apostolic gospel. If you reject the message of the apostles, you cannot ever have fellowship with the Father or the Son. Muslims do not know the Father. They reject the Son and they don't know the Father because they reject the the Apostles' Gospel. You cannot know God apart from this message. You cannot. But I want to turn the corner. But if you receive this message, if you repent of your sins and trust this slaughtered, resurrected Christ, what does that verse say? That we have fellowship through the Apostles' message to the Father and the Son. Now this is good news. Right? The ones who are cut off from God. The ones who are dead in their trespasses and sins. You mean me? I can be brought into fellowship with the living God? Me? I've done nothing but sin against God from the moment that I was born. You mean I can have fellowship with God? And this is what the gospel offers. Fellowship with God. Participation 
and the triune God. Celebration, sharing in the triune God. When we believe the gospel, we get God. We get fellowship with God. We are brought from death to life because we are brought immediately to God who is life. This is, this is fellowship. Fellowship is eternal life. This is eternal life. To be brought to the God who is life. To have God is to have eternal life. This is what it means. This is the highest gift of the gospel. We offer, in our gospel, we offer riches untold. Okay? Glorious riches untold. We look at lost humanity and we offer by grace alone, apart from works, through faith in Jesus, we offer forgiveness of sin. That there is a message that can wash every human sin off the record because the punishment can be borne by the Lamb of God. Our gospel offers forgiveness of sin. But it offers more than that. It offers justification. That our gospel offers that God the righteous judge will open His mouth on the basis of what Jesus has done in our place. Open His mouth and render the verdict and say, You are righteous in my sight because of what Jesus has done. But even more. Right? Because the God the judge steps off the bench and becomes God the Father and adopts us into His own family that we should be called children of God. And we get Him. We get God. We get forgiveness of sin. We get righteousness. And we get the living God. We get fellowship with God. With God. Do you see the glory of this message? John 17 verse 3. And this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. To know that you have it is to know that you know God and His Son. Now I want you to think about the beauty of this gospel. Be reminded of this this morning. That every Christian in this room, every single one of us, we have eternal life. We have fellowship with God. We have the life of God in the soul of man. That His life, His nature, literally pulses through our veins. We are alive in Christ. We're not dead in our sins anymore. We have a new heart. We have a new mind. We have a new nature. And that nature communes with God. And this never ends. This life that we have with God, this fellowship that we have with God, it carries into Millions of years, times millions of years, times millions of years. It is eternal life, and we have it now through the gospel. This is life as God designed it. Life as God, is, God intended it to be. To know God, to commune with God. This is eternal life. And this passage reminds us that the only way that people are brought into fellowship with God and a relationship with God, and a knowledge of God, is through proclamation. We proclaim this to you. We make this known to you. Listen to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Did you catch that? If we don't open our mouths, people do not come into fellowship with God. Fellowship with God only comes through the message being Proclaimed. This is why we have to proclaim this gospel. And what this means, if we shut our mouths, no one is saved. That's what the Bible teaches. If we shut our mouths, no one is saved. And every single time 
that God empowers us to open our mouths and speak of Jesus, every single time that happens in your life, an opportunity is created in that moment for fellowship with God. That I'd encourage you. Every single time that God opens up the door in your life to speak to someone about Christ, you ought to sneak out a quiet corner and bow your head and say, Lord, thank you for that opportunity for life forever, supernatural life, that you can invade that gospel and bring forth a new birth. Every single time you preach it, that opportunity for the new birth is created. Every single time. Every single time you sow the seed. You would think at the end of verse 4 that he would say, we're saying this to you and we're writing these things to you so that your joy may be complete or your joy may be fulfilled. And some of the older translations, the King James and the New King James, that's how they translate the word. But the best Greek manuscripts actually say the opposite. They say we're writing these things so that our joy may be fulfilled. Our joy may be fulfilled. And I want to camp out a second on that theme. This theme encourages me. I want to encourage all of us. This is highlighting the joy of evangelism. As we make this known, there are very few joys on this planet that can compete with making the things of Jesus known to this world. We do this so that our joy is complete. We do it so that their joy is complete too. We want them to respond. But this is a joyful deliverance. Of the gospel. And I want to encourage you today. You know this. Every Christian you know this. That you ought to preach the gospel. You ought to make it known. You are commanded in God's word. It is an imperative for you to make it known. And you know that. Okay? And you ought to feel the weight of that. But you ought to feel more than that. There better be something more happening in your life than you ought to. And what I want to camp out on right now is that you get to. Okay? You get to, you get the privilege as a believer in Jesus to be called an ambassador of Christ. You get to make it known. Not just you have to make it known or you ought to make it known. You get to make it known. God has willed and God is pleased that we open up our mouth and speak about Jesus. And the message of eternal life rolls off the lips of sinful people. You get to make this message known. You get, to, you get the privilege of participating in this gospel going forward in all the earth. You get the privilege to be His ambassador. And I want to talk to you a second about the hypocrisy. Let's say that's not happening. I want to talk to you about the hypocrisy of joyless evangelism. Okay? When we say the word gospel, that word literally means good news. Good message. Happy message, right? And so, there's a natural response that good news produces joy. It produces happiness. Good news is good, right? And if good news is not producing joy and happiness, something's wrong. And I want you to imagine somebody knocking on your door. I'll give you an example of this. And this is what we want God to deliver us from. We're asking Him to do it, even these past couple of days. And I want you to imagine someone knocking on your door and they say, I have a good message for you. Not that anyone would ever say that. Okay, but they have a good message for you. or They have a good product for you. And they launch into their spiel about their product or their message. And they're talking, the verbiage that they're using is, this is so good, change your life. Never going to be the same again, right? And it sounds like such a good message, but the way 
that they're delivering that message and the demeanor that they're speaking that message is indifference or sad. And every one of us would sniff that out in that moment of, man, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying about this message and about this product. But here's the problem. I just really don't believe. I don't, I don't think you believe that. I discern hypocrisy in your life that you're saying it's awesome, but you don't even believe it's awesome. Right. And so here's what I want us to think about that, that God forbid that we would fall into a habitual pattern in our life of making known the message of Jesus solely in bow up and do it because we ought to. This is a joy. This is a joy that we get to open our mouth and speak to anyone who God brings across our path. Any way, anywhere that God opens up a door for the Word. We get to open our mouth and speak about the Son of God. Incarnate in flesh, dying for our sins. And we get to offer lost humanity the only means of salvation. We get to do that. That is our privilege. That is our privilege. This gospel is a joy to preach. And what we want to go after, we're asking God to increase our evangelistic zeal. I've heard three or four people pray that in our prayer meetings over the past couple of days. And this is the bullseye. Lord Jesus, make us exceedingly happy in this gospel. That is our joy to give it to all who come across us. Make us happy, Lord. Make us satisfied in Christ. Increase our joy in this glorious gospel. And I want to talk to every Christian in the room for a second. Every single one of you are the perfect person for the job to make this known. Every single one. We have a terrible habit. When we hear about evangelism and making the message known, the first thing that we do is we, we think of four or five people who are exceedingly zealous in this area and we begin to feel bad about ourselves, right? And I'm encouraging you today, get your eyes off of other people. You are the perfect person to make the gospel known to this world. Why? Because you have personally experienced it. You have experienced the grace of the living God poured out in your life. God has made you a new creation. And so I'm encouraging you today. You're the perfect person for the job. And I want us all to wake up to this reality. Every single day in this world, you live where you live. You work where you work. You go where you go. Not by accident, but by sovereign design. And that's what I want us to wake up to, that, that God has sent you into this world. God has sent you into this world. John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. You are sent into this world by Jesus. And you have got to stop thinking about your life as a consecutive series of happenstances and accidents. Your life is orchestrated by the sovereign God. He has you where He wants you to make Him known. To be His ambassador. To make Him known. You are the perfect person for the job. And I just want you to think about this in the, in the next month. Can you imagine a greater privilege than in the rhythms of your everyday life that you get to open your mouth and the people that God brings you into contact with, you get to speak about Jesus. You get to open your sinful mouth and speak about the Son of God slaughtered in our place. The one who inhabited eternity and came to rescue us. You get the privilege of doing that. Can you think of any better thing to talk about? Can you think of any higher privilege than that you get to be the one to deliver that message? 
Will you get rejected? Absolutely you'll get rejected. But you know what else? God says that every time that that message is given, that opportunity for fellowship with God is created. And God is the one who says, as we speak and as we share, God is the one who says, let light shine out of darkness. This is how God is going to call people out of darkness and into light, out of deadness of sin into life with Christ. So here's what I want us to pray for over the next few days, over the next few weeks, is that you personally, okay, that you would get so satisfied in this gospel, way past factual knowledge of the gospel, but overwhelmed with its glory, that you would get so satisfied and so joyful in Jesus and what He's done for you, that this message begins to leak out of us. That's what we want God to do all over this church, that He would come upon us with the joy of our salvation, that He would restore it, that He would restore the joy of our salvation and that we would make Him known. And our aim is just like we read in Acts 5. Those apostles, they filled up a major city with the true gospel. And that's our aim in this place. We want to fill up Metro Jackson with the true gospel. Our city is infected with fluffy, false gospels. It is. We are not the only faithful church. Okay, We're not. But there are many unfaithful churches in our city that have spread lies about Jesus. And we want to fill up this city with the message of Christ. You just picture that. Like the language behind that. Empty glass poured over until stuff starts coming out. And God says that can happen to a city with the gospel. It can be saturated. With the message of Jesus, we want to do that. We want to see people in our city come into fellowship with God. We want to see dead sinners raised to new life in Christ. They might have heard about Jesus their entire life. We want them to see His glory. We want them to see His glory. We want them to go after the treasure in the field, selling all to go after Christ. We want to see that all over our city. Why else would we be a church here? Why else would we be a church here? We want to see God do this. We want to make Him known in our city. But I also want to put this before you. This will be the last thing that we're going into. God is going to call some of us in this church repeatedly. Repeatedly, He's going to do this. He's going to call some of us to leave this city, to leave this church, and to relocate our entire lives to preach the gospel to the unreached of the earth. And I'm just reminding you, this gospel that we just unpacked, this glorious gospel, the one that raised us from the dead, Massive amounts of humanity had not even heard about this. What I, the things that I just announced to you, they never heard it, not even one time. Massive amounts of humanity, 2,000 years after the resurrection of Christ, have still not heard. Still not heard. It is our job to get this to the ends of the earth. And so with that, I want to transition to our trip that we took to the United Arab Emirates last week, Blake and I. And I want to make you aware of one of the most unique Great Commission opportunities that I've ever seen, that I've ever heard about. And I want to unpack it before you. Okay? I'll give you some quick facts, and then I want you to earnestly consider something in your life. Okay? We are gathered before God for this reason. UAE, small country in the Middle East, about the size of New Jersey. Okay? It's sitting right in the middle of what's called the Arabian Peninsula. 
And it's bullseye center of, of, of what we refer to as the 1040 window. It's right in the middle of the 1040 window. The massive pockets of unreached peoples for the gospel. Population of this small nation is about 10 million people. And 85% of the population of the UAE is migrants. They are not from there. They have migrated into the UAE. Okay? And that makes it the most diverse place on planet Earth. By far, really. Okay? The gathering of peoples in this one little area, it becomes the most diverse place on planet Earth. And I'll give you just an example of this with the city of Dubai alone. City of Dubai has 4 million people. I want to give you some stats. The breakdown of that 4 million. And we saw this, right? We're looking around the city. You can't, you can't find people like you. You can't. There's not, there's not even dominant culture in the city. There's such blending happening of the nations, of the peoples. And so here's, here's just a snapshot into the city of Dubai, 4 million. 2 million are from India. 550,000 are from Pakistan. 450 are local Emirati Arabs. uh, 300,000 are from Bangladesh. 300,000 from Iran. 150,000 from Afghanistan. 100,000 from the Philippines. Another 50,000 from North Africa. And that's one city in the UAE. And if you know anything about our mission and about the unreached peoples of the earth, That is a bullseye list of who we're supposed to be going after in this world. Our job is to finish the mission. To finish the mission. And so God is gathering these unreached peoples that do not have access to the gospel. He's gathering them together in this place. And and Dubai is, is representative of the whole UAE. It's diverse like that. The gathering of peoples in one place. I want to give you two things to consider. Okay? about the uniqueness of this opportunity that God is opening up in our generation. And so the first thing is that, right? That the the peoples are migrating together. The unreached peoples of the earth are migrating together. And then consider this, that they're, they're doing so under arguably the most liberal Muslim government in the world. They are gathering together in a country that is more liberal than any other Muslim rule. Okay, And what that means is that God is opening up a unique door in the UAE for the gospel. Those Muslim leaders in this country allow the church to have land and to exist publicly. To exist publicly. That is an extremely unique thing. Not going to happen in Pakistan. Not going to happen in Afghanistan. Okay? They allow the churches to exist publicly. And the second thing I want you to think about is this. That 85% of the population that, that migrates into this country... They're there on a work visa. They don't give citizenship out. Everybody's there on a work visa. And one of the things that the UAE did uh, 25, 30 years ago when they set up their country is they established English as the business language of the entire country. And so I want you to connect some dots. Okay? Now we have the most diverse place on planet Earth under, under the most liberal rule that allows the church to exist and grow and function publicly. And then now... Almost every single person that you come in contact with can communicate to you with some level of English. With some level of English. This creates a massive opportunity for the church of Jesus to get the gospel to the unreached people of the earth. 
I want to tell you a little bit about the effective door that God is opening in our generation in this country. Okay, This is what God is doing. While we're going about our business every day, He's reconciling the world to Himself, right? This is what He's doing. We got to spend some time with a church, several churches there, but one church in particular called Redeemer Dubai. This church has existed for six or seven years. About uh, 550 church members in this church from 55 different nations. I want you to try to wrap your mind around that, of being a part of a local church from 55 different nations. It is like a snapshot of Revelation 4, Revelation 5, where we are seeing the praise of the slaughtered Lamb of God, the one who redeems all peoples. And this is what God is doing. He's planting churches like that, solid gospel preaching churches in the middle of, this, of these unreached peoples. Established, solid biblical churches. Even if they were sitting in the middle of the Bible Belt America, by any standards that you would use, these are solid biblical churches. And these churches are planting other churches. That church that I just talked about, they planted three other churches in the last three years. They're training pastors to plant five more in the next three years. And that's just an example of one church that God is using in the UAE. Just one. God has opened up an effective door for ministry in this country. And here's, here's where I want to turn the corner. I want to turn the corner and challenge every single one of us to ask yourself this question. And here it is. Would God have you to do what you do right now in another place in this world? Let me reform the question. Would God have you do the job that you're doing right now? The vocation that you have, the things that you do for the Lord to provide for your family. Would God have you do that same thing except on the other side of the world, planted in the middle of the unreached peoples of the earth? Would God have you to move to a city like this to do the same things that you do for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of getting the gospel to the unreached? And I want, to, I want to give you a verse. God has made a name for Himself and His Word that when the church comes together and fasts and prays corporately, this is the kind of thing that God does. Acts 13, verse 2. Listen close. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And I'm praying, I know that I'm not the only one, that God would continue to stir us up. And in the middle of our comfortable lives, that call would come. That God is calling me to leave everything I know, everything that's comfortable, and for me to go and to labor among the unreached. Would God have you to do this? I want every single one of you to sincerely ask this before the Lord. Would God have you to do this? Almost every single church plant that we were able to see, they would send out teams. So they would train a leader and that leader would build a team and they would send out a team to plant a church. And almost every single one that we saw, there were multiple couples or multiple singles from America that moved over. They were teachers, nurses, doctors, a variety of different things. And they would move over, get a job, and what would they do? They would provide for themselves and make disciples. And they would be a faithful church member. And then two or three years down the road, what would happen? God used them to plant a solid gospel preaching local church in the middle of the unreached of the earth. 
That's what I want you to consider if God would have you do. Would God have you do this in your life? There's a wide open opportunity for many different types of careers in the UAE. Business jobs, construction jobs, nursing jobs, consulting jobs, teaching jobs, anything in the medical industry, anything in the IT industry, and lots of other types of industries. Okay? This is the door that God has opened in this country. A unique door has been opened for the gospel. And this is what I want you to consider. Would God have you to relocate and labor among these people? Can you think about a better way to spend two or three years of your life than planning a church in an unreached people group or 55 unreached people groups? Can you think of a better way to labor and lay down your life for Christ and be used for Christ? To close, I want to tell you a story about the massive impact that people like me and you can have in the mission of God. And I want to tell you just a quick story about the first missionaries that, that went into the UAE, modern missionaries in 1955, uh, mid-50s. And I, I want, I'm telling you this to encourage you that when God sends us, we can expect God to use us. We can expect to be partakers of His blessing. We can expect to reap a measure of His harvest. And listen to what God did to ordinary people like me and you. No, no name, no fame. Just ordinary people. Nobody could get into the country in the mid-50s. And so a group of doctors got together and they decided, you know what? Nobody else can get in. We can get in. And they moved there. Uh, mid-50s, they moved into the UAE. And these men loved the people there. They shared Christ and, and they provided medical care in this country for 10, 15 years. And they were faithful to do what God had called them to do. And 10 or 15 years later, God, God had His hand on what they were doing. God poured out blessing on their labor for Christ. And just listen to this. This is, this is mind-boggling. Okay? That God uses a group of Christian doctors and they go in and they serve the people there. And He uses them to change the infant mortality rate of that entire country. They turned that country upside down in that way. And the leaders of that country are so grateful to what these Christian doctors have done for their people in their country that they call a public meeting, mid-60s, late-60s. And the, the Muslim leaders of that country, publicly before their people, they hand these Christian doctors a check for $135 million and they say, we are thankful for what you're doing here. We want you to build hospitals all over our nation. That would be the modern equivalent to maybe three quarters of a billion dollars that was given to a few doctors. And, and this is the event. This is the event that won favor with the government leaders in this country. They said publicly about those Christians, we know that these Christians love us. They were here before the oil money was here. They're not here for the money. They love our people. They said that publicly and then they hand them $135 million. And then this becomes the Genesis event for the open door for gospel ministry in this country. From this point forward, this Muslim government begins to periodically grant land for Christian congregations. Allows Christian congregations to, to function publicly, to, to exist in a variety of cities and to grow and to function. And God did that. God opened up that door through some doctors that loved Christ, that went there to pursue the mission 
of Jesus. God can use us. Ordinary people. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a church planner to be used by God. God can use anybody to fulfill His mission. Whether we go or whether we stay, God can use us like this. God can use us like this. This is all, this is all that God has really to use is, is nobodies, no reputation, the ones who aren't going to share in His glory, share in His fame. This is who He's committed to using. And this is our prayer, right? God, use us like Gideon's army. You heard that? We prayed that since we planted the church. Use us like Gideon's army. God whittled down Gideon's army to 300 people, and then He used those 300 to route thousands for His glory, for His name. And that's the prayer, that God would use this little, new, young church like Gideon's army for the glory of His name, that God would use us in this city and among the nations. Among the nations. I'll close with Psalm 67. This is our prayer. This is our prayer. Psalm 67, verse 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us that Your way may be known on earth and Your saving power among all nations. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we ask You to do just that, Lord. God, we ask You to continue to do a work of grace and power in our midst. Come upon us, Lord, we pray. Come upon us with power from on high, Lord. God, we pray that You would come upon us with boldness and zeal that we don't have, Lord, in our, in our own strength, in our own flesh. Lord, we need Your boldness. Make us bold for You, Lord Jesus. And we pray, God, that You'd fill us with the joy of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that for each of us, Lord, that we would walk in the next season would be the most joyful season that we've ever walked in with You, Lord, Lord God. Make us joyful in the Gospel. God, we pray, Lord, that You would continue to open up doors for us as a church and for us as individual disciples to bear witness to Your name. Lord, make Your name great in this city. Make Your name great among the nations, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.